the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Justin. How's it going, Lindsay? Yeah, it's going okay. I'm pretty uh, pretty passable. Yeah. I'm happy to be talking with you again. I can't wait to do it in person. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know, I'm sort of sort of feeling like a, a laundry mat that needs maintenance in a way. Oh yeah. But then on the yeah, on the other I'm end of it, with that. I'm happy uh, that we're talking movies tonight. It always makes me feel much much better. And this particular movie tonight, I think uh, I I really uh, relate to it a lot. You know, a lot of that uh, humor and pain mixed together, um, you know, the sort of like dark humor of of life and and the world relationships. Yeah, this describes my entire life thus far, I think. Um, Just pain. Yeah. (laughs) And a movie like Rushmore is easily identifiable in your daily life. You can extrapolate anything any theme out of this movie and be able to um, equate it with something that's happened in your life therefore it makes you feel good in some way or makes you feel seen you know yeah it's kind of wild to me that we haven't done a Wes Anderson movie uh, we've you know, been doing this three years um, you would think that we would have done one of his movies considering we've doubled up on uh, multiple directors for the podcast um, true. <laughs> but there was an opportunity. It's, it's Bill Murray's birthday is coming up and, you know, we do of course have a Murray moment with every episode. We're not going to, uh, have one for this episode since it's going to be so, uh, Murray related. This whole episode is just a giant Murray moment. So there's that. Yeah. I think Rushmore is like a great pick and so much talk about this movie and Bill Murray's career, but Rushmore on its own is a really fantastic movie. It is one that I hadn't rewatched in a while. And so I was a little nervous coming into this because I adore Wes Anderson, but, uh, and I, but I really loved, um, Rushmore, but I think it was like the movie of his that I hadn't seen in a while. And, uh, I had forgotten, you know, the it, it's a fine line because the main character of Max, played by Jason Schwartzman, is not the most likable kid, <laughs> and uh, it's it's. I think the movie does a fine job of like making him, uh, giving him enough humanity so you don't think he's just like a total spoiled piece of crap. Yeah, you have to do that with a character like Max. You have to show him being vulnerable and showing him being beaten down. So. The more crappy sides of his personality are offset by seeing that, you know, he has feelings too. Yeah. And, it, you know, and I think in its essence, this is a high school movie. You know, it's framed uh, a kid who's 15 and who's, you know, also switching schools in the middle of a semester. So there's a lot of elements of like high school movies in this. But I think it, uh, Wes Anderson ha- it has an original take here. And, you know, we'll get into that too. Wes Anderson as a director really sticking out as one of the few, um, I think, directors of this generation where his style is so distinct that if any anybody even tries to mimic a tiny bit of his work, it's immediately called out like, oh, they're trying to do like a Wes Anderson thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the same thing with David Lynch and, and Scorsese, but 
but Wes Anderson, I don't know. I mean, he may be the king of like the most distinct style of any director that I can think of. It's just such a mixture of art and film. And not to say that all filmmakers aren't artists, but every one of his movies could be turned into a painting. You know, there's just, there's another aspect going on there. And he's taking from his inspirations and other directors too, but taking those things that he's learned and turning it into his own motif. And definitely, I think, uh, again, hitting on this idea of dark humor, you know, like finding humor in the realistic pains that that we go through in life, you know, like the ups and downs and tattered relationships and finding humility. So many themes in, in his movies, you know, family structure, family dysfunction, being bullied, being an outcast, trying to assimilate, trying to fit in. So many themes throughout his career of all his movies, but we'll focus on Rushmore for this episode. Uh, we'll get into Anderson. We'll get into his relationship with Bill Murray. Obviously, we'll get into a lot of Bill Murray and how he became attached to this project. We'll go into how Rushmore came about, how it got off the ground, and some fun casting stories. And later, we'll go into more about uh, certain trademarks that we see in Wes Anderson films and specifically with Rushmore, the editing, production design, music. There's just a lot of feelings too behind this film. So I can't wait to dive into that. Yeah, the music especially is uh, in all of Wes Anderson's films or soundtrack after soundtrack of, of great, you know, songs selected from usually the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. But uh Again, we're not going to be doing a Murray moment, but we will be doing our picks of the week for this episode. My pick of the week was uh, Permanent Midnight, uh, with a connection being uh, it was also shot by Robert Yeaman, who's been Wes Anderson's cinematographer from Bottle Rocket all the way to his most recent film. And also the movie uh, has a co-starring role with uh, Owen Wilson. And what was your pick? might be kind of a curveball. And I went with a movie that does feature Bill Murray. I couldn't pass up that opportunity. Come on. But it is 2000's Hamlet. Have you seen it? I haven't. I actually, when you told me you're doing this one, I I had to look it up because I didn't really know anything about it. Very different from the original William Shakespeare story, of course. It was made hundreds of years later. But um, does stay very true to the story, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. I look forward to that. Well, um, before we get into our first clip from Rushmore, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Oh, you know, I always love to do that. So the extremely ambitious 15-year-old prep school student, Max Fisher, is on top when it comes to extracurricular activities, yet failing in all his actual classes. You see, he's got more enthusiasm than, say, aptitude. Filled with some uppity delusions of grandeur, Max finds himself smitten with Miss Cross, a first-grade teacher at his school, but his efforts to woo her are less than fulfilling. However, after meeting and befriending the disillusioned, borderline despondent father of some schoolmates, Mr. Bloom, Max figures maybe he can help him win Miss Cross's heart. In a twist of perceived treachery, though, Mr. Bloom and Miss Cross begin a secret affair, thus throwing Max's world into complete turmoil in this story about unlikely friends who become even more unlikely rivals, which then turns into a story about love, revenge, and heartache, and where acting immature won't win the heart of anyone. 
I thought that summed it up really nice. There's a lot of feelings going on in Rushmore, and this was a really nice revisit. I haven't been back to it in years and found myself really living in my head with Rushmore for a couple weeks now, which has been somewhat of a comforting thing in these weird times that we live in these days. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes the, you know, whatever movie we're doing, we do spend a few weeks, you know, researching and we're watching it multiple times and it becomes a part of that two week period. And um, depending on what movie we're doing and how things are going in our lives, it can be pretty interesting. I told my friend Brett that we were doing Rushmore and he's like, oh, thank God. When you were doing Taxi Driver, I was like, do I need to call the police on her? Uh, yeah. I'm thankful. That was a taxi driver was an interesting pick. <laughs> that was my pick, so I put that on me. I I I went right along with it yeah. and I'm happy that I did, but sometimes I flash back to those moments and I don't I don't want to know Travis Bickle for like oh, at least another year. We're we're on a break now. Yeah. Let's uh go to a clip from Rushmore, we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Where did you go to school by the way? Harvard. Really? That's a coincidence. My top schools where I want to apply to are Oxford and the Sorbonne. My safety's Harvard. That's very ambitious. Thank you. What do you want to study? Well, I haven't decided for sure, but probably a double major in mathematics and pre-med. What was your major? I didn't have a major, but my thesis was on Latin American economic policy. Oh, that's interesting. Did you hear they're not going to teach Latin here anymore? This was more like Central America. Oh, Central America and whatnot. Hmm. We're moving on. They're going to cancel Latin. They've got to make room for Japanese. That's a shame because all the Romance languages are based in Latin. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Nihilo Sanctum Esne. What's that? Oh, it's Latin, isn't it? What does that mean? Nothing sacred. Sick transit Gloria. Glory fades. I'm Max Fisher. Hi. Hi. Well, again, I think it's odd that we haven't done a Wes Anderson movie yet for the podcast. And seeing as this is the first movie we've done of his... Um, it only seems proper to give a little bit of background um, because Rushmore was only Wes Anderson's second movie and Rushmore being really the movie that I think set his career off. Um, he made a movie prior to Rushmore called Bottle Rocket. And though I think there's a, a huge cult following for that movie, not that many people saw it when it first arrived in 1996. And one could say a movie like Bottle Rocket Rushmore and the Royal Tannenbaums, all of these have very personal aspects to Wes Anderson and or very direct connections to his life. And it seems like that's kind of how he's always operated. He's been a writer since an early age, even putting on plays in his middle school, I believe. Um, his dad gave him a Super 8 camera when he was a kid. And even though that was something that he had a mind for it was always about writing and about storytelling. And I think that that really does play into why his movies are the way they are. They are fables. They are these stories, these journeys that we go on. 
But without going really deep into Wes Anderson's what made him who he is today, there are plenty of themes that run through his films which directly correlate to his upbringing and relationship with family, brothers. There's a lot going on that you see that connect here, and we do see a lot of that in Rushmore. Though the man has a degree uh, that he got from the University of Texas in Austin in philosophy, he actually met Owen Wilson in the late 80s, 89, I believe, um, as another student in Austin, and they were both taking a playwriting class together. And I found it so funny to find out that they didn't talk to each other in the class. It wasn't until the following semester when they just happened to strike up a conversation. And it was at that time when Wes Anderson said, I'd never really met someone that I wanted to write with and that I, I got. Like our humor gelled together. We just got each other. And to say that you've made it that long in life when writing has been in your blood and you met someone that you wanted to write something with, that seems pretty huge. It's interesting to me, too, that he got a degree in philosophy because Mm -hmm. the University of Texas in in Austin has a fairly significant film program um, even back then. It's always wild to me when when such a stylistic director, you find out that they didn't – like film school wasn't the route. I think it goes to show that the visual element of storytelling in in some of these people like Tarantino and, and Anderson, that the visual element is always there in their mind, but it's the story that's the most interesting to them. And then the visual component is there to just enhance and make this story come to life and have it come off the page. But to me, Wes Anderson is is really a storyteller. This uh, meetup with Owen Wilson, who didn't have an intention in the beginning to be an actor, you know, he was more coming from a writer's angle and that, uh, you know, he had this three movie collaboration with Wes Anderson. And I think a lot of, a lot of people do consider Wes Anderson's first three movies as his best, um, where he was co-writing with Owen Wilson. And it's interesting to see like that Owen Wilson hasn't written anything else or co-written with anybody um, has gone on to be like, you know, like a big, huge Hollywood star, uh, comedic star, and hasn't gone back to collaborating or being more creative behind the camera. But Wes Anderson has made some fantastic movies without him. Well, the way that Wes Anderson described how he and Owen Wilson wrote together, how they figured out stories was, you know, they knew each other for quite a few years and would know a billion stories of each other and would either go on trips or just be hanging out and be able to recount the, you know, this one time when this happened and just have um, a lot of stories behind them. So they would scribble down these ideas and give them, you know, to each other to pass back and forth and eventually work out some type of story or have this idea and start talking about characters and how all of these ideas are going to work into a story. And it might surprise some people that the story of Rushmore actually was being fleshed out and written before Bottle Rocket was ever even a thought. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Rushmore is very personal. They knew kind of what they wanted from the onset. They wanted this kind of prep school vibe behind it, but had all of these stories from their early formative years. This movie is just littered with real life experiences, but it's not so much giant 
moments. It's little things. It's the character of Mr. Bloom, Bill Murray, having so many lines that Owen Wilson says, you know, his his father said, and distilling his father into Mr. Bloom and giving him the more disappointing aspects of his father, let's just say. Yeah, Owen Wilson said he was expelled from the private school he was going to. Yeah. <laughs> and his father was like on the board of trustees and Oof. something like that. And he said his father, that was a direct quote from his father saying, I never thought that I would have children that would grow up like this, <laughs> which is kind of a very uh, defeating line that Bill Murray uses, you know, and his kids are just out of control. The fact that Bill Murray gravitates more toward Max than his own kids and relates to him more. Um, I think is something that probably a lot of parents deal with. It cuts pretty deep in, in Rushmore. And yeah, you know, maybe Mr. Bloom, there are a lot of aspects that were based on Owen Wilson's father. Owen Wilson also said that the way that Mr. Bloom's kids behave, he was friends with two guys that were like that, that were just complete hellions towards their father. All of these things are just a jumbled uh, kind of ball of different experiences and people that they've known throughout their life. Even Wes Anderson says that there are many aspects of himself in Max. Maybe not so much the extroverted, boisterous kind of personality that Max is. Wes Anderson was much quieter and, and meeker than, say, Max is. But they both share that lack of ambition towards academics that sort of thing, and had their own vision in mind of, of what they wanted to do, which didn't necessarily fit well into the structured school system. And Rushmore does feel very personal with the character of Max and that he's overly ambitious and everything, sort of like a master of none. You know, he like does all these <laughs> yeah. extracurricular activities that he's not even necessarily that good at. And not only that, he doesn't excel in math, but the opening of the movie, I mean, the very opening scene is this fantasy of him solving this unsolvable math equation that the <laughs> teacher yeah. has put on the board that even, you know, he can't answer in that you know, Max does it perfectly and everybody's like putting him up on their arms like they've just won like a state championship or something, you know, and we'll get in discussion too. We'll talk about Jason Schwartzman's uh, character more of Max. But um, since this is a, a special Murray-esque episode, let's get into a little bit about how Bill Murray came into this project because it wasn't totally out of the blue. I mean, he was he was definitely someone that they had in mind um, early on in this project. Had in mind, yeah, definitely. They they wrote the part of Mr. Bloom for Bill Murray, but just thought that he would never see the script or it just wouldn't be something that he'd be interested in. I think Bill's reputation has preceded him for many, many years. So to have him in mind to, to be in your film is, is a lofty goal. But you know what? Why not? Why not hope for that and write it for that? It feels like a tailor-made movie for Bill Murray. It doesn't feel like a, a shock to me that he fits so well in this movie. And I think Bill Murray himself said that there's this Rushmore was among like maybe three or four scripts in his career that he read. And normally he, you know, he's been known as a person who improvises a lot. And he said a lot of times he, he gets a script and he, and he thinks, you know, I'm going to take the job versus how much work am I going to have to do on the script? Like how much are they going to be expecting me to improvise to fix things that just are, not really well written or characters aren't developed. And he said, you know, this is one of three scripts where he like, just was like, you know what, I'm just going to go with what's on the page. It's like written so well. And the character's so developed, I really don't need to 
change anything or swing for the fences on the scene to make something funny because it's already there. It's already funny. Wes Anderson was dressing up as Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters when he was a kid for Halloween. So he had a long connection with this man. And it doesn't seem like uh, Wes Anderson's ever let anything stand in his way of desiring to see how far he can go and make his vision come to life. So why not try to get Bill Murray in your movie? And luckily for Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, a woman named Jessica Tushinsky at Creative Artists Agency, who represented Bill Murray at the time, was a fan of Bottle Rocket. As many people were, the the movie didn't perform that well, but there were a lot of folks that talked about the film in the industry, and there was certainly a buzz behind Wilson and Anderson. So Jessica Tushinsky gets this script and suggests Bill take a look at it. And she says, you know, it's the guys who made Bottle Rocket. And Bill's like, what are you talking about? Whatever. Yeah, send me the script. Sure, I'll take a look at it. And she says, I'll go ahead and send you a copy of Bottle Rocket along with it. I mean, if you uh, if you if you've listened to Murray moments or read anything on the man uh, over the years, probably forcing him to watch a movie or telling him to do anything is probably not going to do it or just it's not going to be first on his radar to do it. So he gets the script, reads it. And a couple days later says, okay, I'm interested in this. I really love the vision of this. I'm kind of surprised at how precise it is. And I want to talk to Wes Anderson. And I think it was Jessica Tushinsky again. He said, did you watch the movie? And he says, no, 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 it's, it's fine. Just give me Wes's number. And she says, okay, yeah, I will. I'll go ahead and send you another copy of Bottle Rocket. And he's like, yeah, it's somewhere, somewhere around here. I don't know. So he gets another copy of that. So Wes Anderson gets this call and is kind of surprised that Bill Murray seems like he's totally on board and thinks that they're going to have this conversation about what Rushmore is about, uh, what he sees for the film, his vision for everything. But what followed was Bill talking to Wes Anderson about this 1965 Kurosawa film, Redbeard, which Wes Anderson hadn't seen before. And Bill just goes on about the movie what happens in it, and just everything about this film. Of course, Anderson watches it later, um, but at the time, he's like, where is this guy going with this conversation? But then at the end, says something like, okay, um, I'm in it. I'd like to do Rushmore. It's so very Bill Murray, such a Murray moment by itself. And add to the Bottle Rocket video collection that Bill is racking up, Anderson asked him if he had by chance seen Bottle Rocket, and he said, no, I haven't just yet. And Wes Anderson goes ahead and sends him another copy of Bottle Rocket. I think we're up to three now, but then there's at least four and I think five copies, which eventually make their way to Murray. And to this day, I haven't heard that the man's actually watched Bottle Rocket. And in some ways, I get where he's coming from of not wanting to you know, possibly watch, you know, what if he hated it? <laughs> you know, he's excited about the script and he's like, wait a minute, this guy made a terrible first movie. It has nothing to do with Rushmore. This is the vision that I have for the movie and it sounds perfect. Like I want to be involved. I don't want any, I don't want to risk anything else throwing that off. And man, he agreed to work for scale too. And that comes out to under $10,000. I know that, which is just insane. Bottle Rocket was independently financed, I believe, but Rushmore, this wasn't uh, 
like a tiny studio putting this movie together. I mean, this was like a Walt Disney subsidy. It just shows how much how much confidence people had in, in Wes Anderson, you know, that he's got a movie picture set up at Disney. They're letting him shoot in Houston, Texas, where he's from, you know, at a school that he, you know, went to. Um, they're not making him shoot it in L.A. He's got Bill Murray joining on to a cast of relative unknowns. And you, and you would think, you know, you're the big actor. You're the big name that everybody knows. You're coming on to this professionally set film that's set up with a studio and everything. But, you know, it's a, a fairly green director. This is only his second movie. This is his first movie working with a known actor who's been, you know, whose movies he's, he the director watched when he was a little kid. And that would have to be very nerve wracking. And, yeah, you know, Bill Murray had a perfect opportunity to be a total a-hole here. Like he could have come in and thrown his weight around and did things his way. But instead, he was like very humble and gained the trust and respect of Wes Anderson and even helped in pitched in, you know, financially if Wes Anderson would have needed it. I think there was an issue where Wes Anderson wanted to get some sort of uh, helicopter shot that he felt was necessary for the movie in the studio wouldn't budge on it. And Bill Murray said, you know, I'll, I can write you a check if, you know, if, if you really feel like you need that shot and they won't pay for it or, or tell them I'm going to pay for it. Maybe they'll pony up the money, <laughs> you know, playing against the studio because yeah. they don't want to be embarrassed that the lead actor is paying for a, a helicopter shot. As far as I know, that shot never got made or whatever. It didn't end up doing it. But just an, another story that shows that Bill Murray was like, you know, he's a very genuine person who though has this legacy behind him come onto a set and work with a new director and create a real, I mean, I think a real serious friendship. I mean, Wes Anderson's used Bill Murray in some aspect in every single movie that he's made after Rushmore. And as you know, there's one interview I saw where Bill Murray said, Wes Anderson is the only person like he doesn't have to read the script anymore. He just says somehow he gets contacted by Wes Anderson and just says, you just tell me when the movie will be getting made or when you need me. And, you know, I'll come down and do the movie, whatever it is, whatever role you need me to do. It's pretty insane. You know, I mean, that's a lot of (laughs) trust to put in somebody. And that's like a real friendship, like a real long collaboration. It makes me respect and appreciate Bill Murray even more to know that, you know, he's in this position where he could have this could have went a totally different way. And not to bag on an actor here, but I'm I, I I don't know why I said that because I'm totally about to bag on somebody. <laughs> For comparison's sake, you know, and I know Kevin Smith is a much different director than uh, Wes Anderson, but there's a very famous story that Kevin Smith tells about when he did the movie Cop Out, and he was a huge fan of Bruce Willis since he was a little kid, and he said Bruce Willis came on set and he was everybody was so pumped that Bruce Willis was going to be in their movie, and he was just a total jerk and like didn't care about the script. He hated that he was there. He just, you know, threw his weight around and made it totally unfun to a total miserable experience for everybody. And that could be of the fault of maybe he didn't like the script or whatever. He didn't trust Kevin Smith as a director, but it sounded like he didn't even give him a chance. Bill Murray really was giving somebody a chance and really wanting to nurture, you know, do make a good movie. I think it really shows, you know, and I think also to the relationship between Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman, like their chemistry, I think really comes off on screen is genuine. You know, they, it doesn't, and, and Bill Murray's like acting alongside somebody just was Jason Schwartzman's first movie. He wasn't even an actor, you know, he wasn't even aspiring to be an actor. So Bill Murray's coming in and I'm going to share 
a huge role, like co-starring role with this guy who's never acted and, and also approached that with, you know, dignity and, and respect and didn't say, you know, what the heck, you know, I'm coming all the way out here to act with somebody who has not done anything. It's really a testament to the talent involved in Rushmore. He's not exactly afraid of, you know, showing that he's not happy and working with people that aren't prepared or just don't have it together. And even kid actors, sometimes he's not really fond of doing that, especially when there are parents on set or all of these situations that he's been confronted with over the years. You can imagine that he can already kind of predict how certain situations are going to come up. And I can't help but think that after reading this script that he felt so confident to just kind of blindly agree to do it and felt confident in Wes Anderson that he knew somewhere in himself that this guy is going to make sure that whoever else in this movie is up to par and this isn't going to be a screw-off type of experience. And I got to believe that that's just based on what he's been through in his life. Like, I don't think that the man's a complete saint that, you know, that he's... I think that he is humble, but I do think that there's some things that he can just inherently, knowing someone that's involved, like the guy that's heading everything, if you can trust that guy, then everything else is going to fall into place. And Wes Anderson going into this project, and Jason Schwartzman for that matter, were both incredibly nervous about working with you know the legend Bill Murray. But they both said that upon meeting him and getting his vibe and working with him, we're just like, okay, this is going to be totally fine, actually. I don't know what I was freaking out about. And even Bill Murray imparted you know, knowledge and help to Jason Schwartzman, who had to have been a tiny bit nervous, I would imagine. I mean, the guy, sure, comes from a very famous family. You're the main actor in a movie, in your very first movie. <laughs> in your very first it's movie. a little bit of pressure. And it's all riding on yeah. you. Yeah. And you and you saw your cousin massacred in the press for bad acting in Godfather 3, so you know. <laughs> the whole vibe of everything on Rushmore seemed like a collective of people that were there to really bring this unique story to life. And you've got all of Wes Anderson's crew that he had used from Bottle Rocket. So you have this built-in support system to help the newbies that are coming in that haven't worked with Wes Anderson before. So this idea of community really came together for this entire production. And Wes Anderson has said that he wanted everyone involved with this picture to be on good footing, to have this sense of friendship, because to him, the biggest theme throughout Rushmore is friendship. And it's not to say that that's the only theme, but that certainly is a huge one throughout the story. Yeah, I think friendship is the strongest theme in Rushmore, and especially the bond that Bloom has with Max, even though there's a second act where they're at a difference with each other and they're actually doing terrible things to each other. I think in a heightened reality sort of way, you know, like cutting the brakes on his car, like putting bees or, you know, riding over his bike. (laughs) But I think there is, at the end of the movie, you see that they respect each other. You see that their friendship can't be broken, even though they have a difference of opinion or if they feel like one wronged the other, they still respect each other. It also seems to like Bill Murray's character doesn't feel respected by his kids or like his wife or like anyone in his life. 
though he does find companionship with this teacher, you know, that Max also likes. But also no one really identifies with Max either. Like he doesn't fit in, you know, everybody thinks he's weird or he has physical, sometimes physical fights with his classmates. He just has these bursts of violence when he can't see eye to eye with somebody. But with the Bill Murray character, you know, they have this, they gravitate toward each other. And I think that is the the key element in the movie is like their friendship and it ends on such a great note. I mean, the, the end of the movie really does, uh, you know, it, it's a tearful ending and, and not necessarily in a sad way. It's like a, it's kind of heartfelt, you know, and with the music coming in and you do feel like it does have in a lot of ways for as quirky as this movie is, it has like your feel good Hollywood ending where everybody comes together and like every person that you've seen throughout the movie is at this play <laughs> that Max yeah. puts on and that they're all watching it and it's like this big party at the end you know everybody's getting together and everybody's celebrating something you know, letting bygones be bygones in some ways it's like a fantastical version of how friendships work but there's a lot of reality there we all have friendships with people that can date back 20 or 30 years where you know you can be at odds with somebody but because you have a history you have a certain you know each other in a certain way or you relate in a certain way that other you don't with other people you get each other it's hard to throw that away and I, I feel like that's like ever present in Rushmore gosh I couldn't agree more Justin <laughs> you just kind of encapsulated everything um that the film's about you know the ending to me it is a tearful ending man I can't help but still identify with Max at the end when even though everything is coming up roses for him, everyone's proud of him and he's being celebrated and recognized. And, you know, even his father's there, you know that in his heart, he still is carrying a torch for Ms. Cross. And it's such a testament to the, the truth of adolescence that is written into the story. Like you and I were talking off the mic about how these grandiose things that he does for Ms. Cross, if he were a 40 year old man, would be creepy and weird. Um, but because he's a 15-year-old, it makes sense because you do do things like that when you're younger and you don't think about it. You're just going with the id. And I think that is all that Max is doing. And, and in a way, his otherness or his outsiderness should be celebrated, but it's so hard for him to connect to people. But by the end of the film, you see that more than just his father now understand him at least a little bit more. Yeah, I think the movie is as much about friendship as it is about family. But I think this is a good stopping point. Let's go to another clip from Rushmore. We'll come back. We'll talk about this brilliant cast of unknowns as well as uh, some of the production, uh, Anderson's style, and then uh, we'll talk about a little bit about uh, the release of this movie and its reception. All righty. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Well, they're totally inappropriate for the occasion. Well, I didn't know we were going to dinner. That's because you weren't invited. Take it easy, Max. You were the one that ordered him a whiskey and soda. So what's wrong with that? I can write a hair play. Why can't I have a little drink to unwind myself? So tell me, Curly, how do you know Miss Cross? We went to Harvard together. Oh, that's great. I wrote a hit play and directed it. So I'm not sweating it either. Well, we talked quite a bit about Bill Murray and how he got involved with Rushmore, but we didn't say too much about 
its main star, Jason Schwartzman. I think I said a little bit earlier that, you know, this was his, in fact, his first movie. He was a musician. He came from a very famous family, the Coppolas, Francis Ford Coppola being his uncle. His cousin is Nicolas Cage. His cousin is Sofia Coppola. And his mom was, uh, you know, Adrian and Rocky. This was crazy. <laughs> a very, very famous and powerful Hollywood family. And he's pretty, I think, pretty candid about getting the the job he was you know was able to get connections through a, a party that I think his family was having you know where there's agents there and the Hollywood people and Wes Anderson had been him and Owen Wilson had been looking for a year to find someone to play the uh, lead character of Max and they were even looking in other countries and they were like hey what well, maybe maybe Max is British maybe as a British accent, just because they couldn't find anybody <laughs> that really yeah. fit. And Jason Schwartzman came along. They really thought that he was right. They didn't think that he physically looked the part that they were thinking of, but he had the uh, style and the mannerisms down. Having that voice, you know, bringing the voice off the page that that they had in mind. And I think he does a really great job. It's, it's always fascinating to me when someone who isn't an actor can just kind of like naturally fall into creating a character like that. I also think of like um, John Hedder and Napoleon Dynamite, you know, somebody mm, yeah. who wasn't, wasn't like had been acting forever and they do this, their first role was like kind of phenomenal. And Jason Schwartzman really, uh, I love that. I love his style in this movie, but I really also love that he looks like a 15 year old kid, um, which I think was like the a really important thing for this movie is to have not be someone who's like 20 or 21, someone who's mature that's supposed to play this mature role, but finding someone who actually looks like they could be in like 10th or 11th grade. Now, he was a senior in high school and it was in 97 when he was at this party um, that his family was having. Uh, it was like a charity event, I guess, party. But yeah, he has his cousin Sophia to thank because she happened to strike up a conversation with one of the casting directors of Rushmore and started talking about the plot of this movie. And Sophia said, that's funny. It kind of sounds like my cousin describing the character of Max. And just coincidentally and probably very fortunately for Jason Schwartzman. And when he was at this charity event party, it was centered around his composer grandfather where all of these uh, musical pieces were being performed. So he thought going to this, he was going to come to it kind of dressed over the top, kind of like how Max would. He said he had a top hat and a jacket with tails on the back of it. So he's talking to the casting director of Rushmore dressed up like this. And the casting director is like, you kind of really really fit this image of this character, maybe not physically, but we really want you to audition. And to Jason Schwartzman, he thought, really? You think so? I mean, I've never been in a movie. I'm just a drummer, man. I'm just back. I'm I'm the guy that nobody pays attention to. So the next day, the script shows up to his house, and he does end up auditioning and shows up to the audition in a prep school type jacket with a homemade Rushmore patch that he'd made. So, I mean, you kidding me? You're going to show up to an audition like that when you have the confidence and look of Schwartzman. Yeah, I can see why Wes Anderson amended the image that he and Owen Wilson originally had. Basically, Wes Anderson, the scrawny, kind of sickly looking guy. And don't you love movies like this where 
in in this, I, you know, I can't think of any like recent examples, but you know, I think it's like a rare event whenever a movie hits like this, where you see an actor and this is like their very first movie, but they're like the main star mm-hmm. and, and you, yeah. you know, and you're watching, you're like, whoa, who is this person? Cause no one's ever seen, no one knows who they are. Again, I bring up Napoleon Dynamite, but I also think of well, Almost Famous that we've done on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, you, you see a performance by someone and it makes the movie, I don't know, a little more interesting because you can't place them. It's just so much different than watching a movie with an unknown versus like, well, it's the new, you know, it's the new Keanu Reeves or it's the new, new Tom Cruise. You know, it's like we've <laughs> yeah. seen these people for 20 years. So there's you can place them so easily because they, you know, they reuse some of the same tricks and ticks and styles and mannerisms yeah. that, you know, in different characters. But watching somebody brand new. It's always a bit exciting. Rushmore was definitely that movie for me, you know, like just walking out of it thinking, whoa, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And there is something that really pops about him on screen and not to be so basic as to say an appearance, but this kid who really is a kid, but has these giant eyebrows, this jet black hair, and just these features that are somewhat uncommon when it comes to the main star of a movie And to have him offset with Bill Murray, who you can almost see how he is kind of the younger version of who Mr. Bloom used to be, you know. And by having someone that is so striking and atypical to who you see leading a movie, you're very drawn in. And the confidence of Max and that Schwartzman definitely has, and I I don't think that that's something that he magically came up with. I think the guy has always been fairly confident, even if he didn't necessarily think that there was a chance in hell he would get this role. I think that there is a reason that it was spotted, you know, in him that he he had those qualities of Max, whether he was humble about the idea of even it being a possibility or not. And I I think they did a really good job of casting his father with Seymour Cassell because oh, yeah, Seymour Cassell has always had kind of like an old man face, but with the big eyebrows <laughs> and like you could see, yeah. I mean, you can really picture <laughs> Jason Schwartzman and Seymour Cassell that he looks like a, like you it could have been a young version of him. And mm-hmm. also getting such a veteran actor. I mean, Seymour Cassell, God, has been around since like the fifties, you know, and like did a ton of movies with John Cassavetes and uh, he just always been a fantastic character actor and occasionally doing a lot of independent films mixed with uh, huge, you know, big budget movies like Dick Tracy, stuff like that. Always awesome to see him pop up, but it's great. I, I I love how they got some of these really strong character actors um, like Brian Cox, who plays the the head of the school and you know people that you you may not know their names but you definitely distinctly know their faces and like oh man i've seen this guy in like 50 movies and i love that wes anderson and owen wilson wanted brian cox because they loved him in manhunter and manhunter and for those of you that remember do you remember lie justin uh yes that was one that hit me when it came out and man that's what i think of when i look at brian cox that movie just stuck with me he's such a wonderful actor and then to see manhunter years and years later um seeing him in anything i look forward to it so when he pops up in this as the head of rushmore it's like yeah that fits totally he would be He's in a movie called Red. Have you ever seen that? You know, it's funny. I have it and I still haven't watched it yet, but it's it's in my I know that I need to. Someone brought that up to me the other day, actually. And I'm like, yeah, I know I need to watch it. 
Um, and probably we would say maybe third build would be Olivia Williams, who plays Ms. Cross, the object of affection for, for Max and Mr. Bloom. I think that her role is fairly understated in this, but I do appreciate that her deepness and and sadness is slowly revealed in a way that is through the other characters. And we we get a little bit of insight into how she feels, but mainly it's through the conversations and interactions with Max, mostly. But she doesn't just exist for these men to just be the object of their affection. And she stands up for herself and never gives in to this idea of liking the fact that a kid is interested in her, which I think some stories would veer towards, but I never get that drift with their relationship. And she also says, and I can't have this relationship with Mr. Bloom because he hates himself, but I'm caught up in my own sadness as well, but she's still working through it. I really adore her character. And I think that if anything, her character could have been expounded on a little bit more. Yeah, I do like that there is that we do see the flip, though, of her character, you know, finally getting pretty upset with Max, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. like just getting kind of frustrated with both of these guys uh, <laughs> in their in their like yeah. affection toward her. Uh, also to just the relationship between her and Max. This was one of those movies where you watch in 2021. You're like, oh, is this going to be even a little bit creepy? But it's not a provocative movie <laughs> in the way that you would no. think it would be when you hear no. the storyline of the student starts liking his teacher and then they start hanging out. They play it very tasteful in that uh, you never really question like why on earth would she go have like a lunch with him or something. But it makes sense that she doesn't look at him as a little kid till he shows himself as a little kid, you know, and throws a tantrum because she's invites Luke Wilson to their post play dinner. I think it's short-sighted to say that there's no way a a teacher could have some type of a friendship with a 15-year-old kid if she does find him intriguing and, you know, more of an adult or stands out amongst the other kids in school. Sure. I mean, I I had teachers that I felt like I connected with on another level when I was in high school that wasn't just student-teacher relationship, like I actually liked them. And I, and I feel that that is what's happening here, that Miss Cross, she's not even entertaining like that idea, but when she knows that that is what Max is thinking, she calls him out directly. Yeah. It's not this thing that is wishy-washy or she's trying to be coy about it. She's straight up like, hey, you know that I'm much older than you, right? And this is ridiculous. And that is why this isn't a cringy type of storyline in 2021. I agree. I think a real standout for me in this movie, uh, the, one of the characters I love the most is Mason Gamble is Dirk Calloway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he just has this, <laughs> it's it's almost like chilling. I, I, I think it's a shame that he, didn't get picked to do a movie like The Good Son or like The Bad Seed. I think he right? would have like yeah. just really been absolutely perfect because he does have these this very Americana, the perfect boy next door, but then he can do those faces where he just looks like, you know, he's going to murder Bill Murray <laughs> and like just that the the stare down. I think yeah. I, I would have loved to have seen him do like a Bad Seed type movie. It's funny when you say The Good Son, because it must have been thought that this would be the next Macaulay Culkin. I think it was like Wes Anderson or Owen Wilson said they were a little bit worried about using him at first because 
he had just come off of Dennis the Menace as mm-hmm. Dennis the Menace, and that movie was, you know, a minor hit, and they were worried, like, are you, is anyone going to be able to, is he going to, is he too Dennis the Menacey? Like, is he <laughs> just going to be that character? But then they, nah. um, as Wes Anderson was saying, Mason Gamble was such a good actor to where he could make adjustments, like, almost robotically, like, he could say, can you do it this way? And he'd be like, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, and he would, like, adjust himself and then do the next take, you know, exactly how Wes Anderson wanted and it's kind of you know I don't he's not really been in too many movies it's kind of crazy to me because he he really uh you know and it may maybe just one of those things where child actors you know they get burnt out on it or something but he's really great in this movie he is for sure a standout the confrontation where he steps in front of Mr. Bloom's car and calls him out and spits on his car I'm scared what is he supposed to be like 12 13 14 I'm scared of that kid (laughs) He's really great in this and the friendship that he and Max have, the evolving friendship where he's, you know, in some ways looks up to him, but then he also sees that Max needs a little bit of assistance too. Then going to being upset with Max about him lying to him. And, you know, there's this evolution that is always a theme in Wes Anderson films where kids try to act like adults and adults act like kids. But whether an adult or a child, they're going through these same motions. And it always goes back to this idea that I love in, in general, that no matter what age we are, we are always the same and always going through the same changes. It just might be a different scenario in life. In Wes Anderson, uh, he has so many... All the There's so many tiny little parts in this movie where he has an eye for either, you know, he's going to use his friends that he knows can do the job, or if there's, like, an extra that looks interesting or is doing something interesting, he's, you know, quick to, like, let's use them for more scenes or, like, in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, also, another interesting choice is uh, Kumar Palana, who plays uh, Mr. Little Jeans, but <laughs> yeah. uh, was also been, like, a Wes Anderson standout. Like, he was in, uh, he plays uh, Kumar in Bottle Rocket and... Uh, Pagoda in Royal Tenenbaums. He's great in Royal Tenenbaums. He's so great in Royal Tenenbaums. But it's just like I just love that he has so few yeah. scenes, but I love, you know, just in Rushmore too. It's just like best play I ever saw. You know, it's just like yeah. so, just so endearing. Oh man, Sarah Tanaka, who plays Margaret Yang, the girl in public school that is enamored a little bit with Max and is completely blown off by him but then calls him out for it, and then they later become friends. Margaret Yang, that's a good character that could could go on much further or show up. I would want her to show up in another Wes Anderson movie. And a, uh, a person who became huge that um, is just a background extra in the movie, Alexis uh, Blytel, who um, went on to be Rory and Gilmore Girls. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Luke Wilson, brother of Owen, um, as well as Andrew Wilson, the two Wilson bros, had a uh, little bit roles in this movie. Um, Andrew Wilson is the coach who is uh, very upset that his uh, field is about to be uh, turned into a <laughs> aquarium. A giant aquarium. <laughs> um, because then, Max uh, is trying to win the affection of yeah. Miss Cross by making an aquarium. Yeah, because she likes fish. <laughs> such a 15 year old thing to do and luke wilson is her boyfriend who uh i think gets the biggest um the biggest laugh in the movie is the whole exchange between him and jason schwartzman 
And it should also be said that that was a line that was made up by Luke Wilson, that he was the one who thought up Max's punchline. And it works so perfectly in that scene. I think that was in the trailer, too. That was a big laugh. I've said that line I don't know how many times in in my life. It doesn't matter how cheesy or if it works, you kind of make it work because it is that bad but also yeah. that good like how how often is that joke <laughs> being thrown around as someone who just starts working at a hospital you oh know? i'm sure i'm sure you're just like waiting for somebody to say <laughs> oh are they yeah bill murray's reaction in that too it, it epitomizes everyone's feeling yeah. <laughs> towards that line i love that bill murray can take an old gag like uh almost spitting out your your drink but like <laughs> still make that look fresh it doesn't look like it wasn't natural. Yeah, but yeah, it's such a beautifully cast movie. Um, we should keep moving on. Uh, just wanted to briefly, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but just touching on Wes Anderson's distinct style. Uh, you know, he really is a director who has so much attention to detail and the production design, the set design, the costumes, you know, hair and makeup. And, you know, and I'm not saying that every director isn't interested in, the. you know, they're making millions of decisions and they're consulting yeah. with all these different yeah. departments but Wes Anderson seems to his movies all look and feel a certain way like they all choose a particular color palette they all seem like hyper reality in their look and their feel and he just seems so like precise and like what he wants the look to be and how he wants you know colors to dictate a certain character and in the costuming a lot of times everybody has this distinct look even all the way you know as as early as you know bottle rocket but definitely rushmore and even more further in life aquatic and royal tenant bounds mm-hmm. and, and so on and so on every single one of his movies you know uh, it's a group costume for halloween oh my gosh you're totally right it is and with costuming if you Look at Rushmore specifically. I think in all of his movies, this happens. Everyone has their particular style or a particular outfit. But with Rushmore, no one really changes clothes too much. They have their specific style. And when they are in a different attire, there's some type of change that's happened in their life. And it could be Bill Murray, who's really at a low point in his life. Or it could be when Max is kind of gone down the tubes and he has gotten in four fights in a row and just he is at the bottom. And then he reemerges as kind of like a reinvented man. You know, everyone changes. And with that, with the evolution of their character, their outfit changes as well. He's one of those directors where if I came over to somebody's house, and this is kind of my test, like I'm going over to anybody's house and watching movies. I never do that, but I always <laughs> use this example of like being younger of like, you know what I mean? If I went over to someone's house and they said, hey, I'm going to throw on a Wes Anderson movie, I you, they could just like throw any movie on and I'd be down to sit down to watch it versus if they were like, hey, I'm going to put on a... Uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie or like a Martin Scorsese <laughs> like well which one you know what I mean yeah. like what are we about to sit down and watch I don't know if I'm in the mood for it I don't know if I'm ready to watch Kundin at two, Tuesday at 7pm <laughs> there is a a vibe a Wes Anderson vibe throughout all of his films and that's not necessarily saying that it's it's following the same storyline but there are enough similarities whether it comes to the set design or the general themes that go all throughout his films, that 
it is something that connects to people on an emotional level and on a visually appealing level. His movies aren't just something that are, are good in, in one vein and or it's good for just the storytelling or it's really action-packed or something. All, all of his films have varying degrees of these things. There's drama, there's extreme moments of, of funniness in all of his films, and then there are moments of violence, there are moments of darkness. There's just a lot of things that appeal to so many people, and on top of it, like I said in the beginning of the episode, it is like you are watching a moving painting half the time, you know? And yes, Justin, I totally agree with you that his movies evolve and have become even bigger, you know, over over time. And I, I think I still connect to the Rushmore, Tannenbaums, and Life Aquatic era. I think Life Aquatic is where the big shift starts to happen, but it's not quite the full transition into, I think, the next stage of his career. The, the more I watch Grand Budapest Hotel, the more I think Wes Anderson did like Indiana Jones movie, you know? It's, oh, uh, yeah. It, yeah, completely agree with you. It's very moving. I mean, I don't think it was a movie that really... Uh, kind of got me choked up the first time I saw it but like this the last viewing that I did of it I mean there was like multiple times where I was like man this is really you know hitting me hard and just as somebody who actually I I just crammed in uh Darjeeling Limited and Grand Budapest Hotel and then rewatched all of the Wes Anderson movies that I had already seen admittedly I couldn't watch Fantastic Mr. Fox or Isle of Dogs, not because I don't own both of them. It's just that I have a dog that watches TV that can't handle animals on television. And we we made it 23 minutes, I think, into Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I was holding him and he's just shaking and whining. I can't I can't watch the movie with with that. So I got to I got to figure out something else. But it's yeah. not because. I don't have both of them and I want to watch them. It's just impossible. But one thing in watching all of these movies in order as much as I could, just seeing all of the similarities and how they are all so varyingly different. But I love with Rushmore, we see kind of where it changed from Bottle Rocket to Rushmore, where Rushmore was the framework for everything else, whether it's the symmetrical framing that he would do, um, or, or just, I mean, framing is such a very important thing in Wes Anderson, whether it's set up for just composition or blocking or for camera movement. All of these things play such a huge role in how he is telling a story. And they're also precise, just that very fundamental thing that convinced Bill Murray to do Rushmore in the first place. He knew that this guy has a vision and you see all of the particularities in everything that he's trying to communicate, even down to the editing and how his use of montages, it doesn't feel like a montage. It's the it's it's showing the passage of time, but it's in such a way that you need all of this information. You want all of this information and it's being fed to you relatively quickly, but you don't even notice that it's a montage and the montages in Rushmore. I don't know what my favorite one is. If it's Max and Mr. Bloom trying to like get in shape or whether it's Max and his varying clubs, there are just so many ways that Anderson chooses to communicate information to you. It just really helps you understand the characters and it's all important and it's all throughout his movies, every single one of them. And if anything, 
it just gets more intense with each movie that has uh, occurred. I like his use of using text on screen to like, you know, say who the characters' names are, what they're about. It got adopted by so many other filmmakers. It's not like Wes Anderson did was the first person to do this, but his use of um, slow motion for like a comedic scene, like yeah, a character like yeah. doing something a bit comedic in slow motion while there's a needle drop for like a really good song. I think Darjeeling Limited is like one of my favorite scenes where it slows down and he's trying to catch the train and it's like a, a wide shot. Um, his uh, use of music, I think, in all of his movies is very significant, particularly in Rushmore, like not so much using a score for everything, but doing this Scorsese route where like I'm going to use, though I think he finds a way of like, he's not using hit songs that everybody's heard of. It was almost like he brought new attention to these old songs from the seventies or like more like a British new wave songs that maybe the average music listener wouldn't be aware of. Yeah. His decision to use almost all music from the kinks, it helps create this atmosphere and just this unifying feeling that this is all about, you know, this is Max's world and that there's a little bit of anger. There's love, but there's also just this feeling of rebellion, but it's also kind of stifled in some way, frustrated in some way. And Anderson's decision to use British invasion type music wasn't the only uh, usage of music in the film. He also teamed up with Mark Mothersbaugh. And together, they sussed out a lot of ideas, but came down to the feeling that there needed to be a lot of mandolin involved. So notice that in amongst the Kinks music that you hear, probably the most predominant, I would say. For me, that's what sticks out in it. But those moments when you do hear uh, the Mother's Baugh addition to it, that to me is Rushmore, is the feeling behind this elitist prep school that is Rushmore. That's what that is. And then the other half of it is Max's frustration of being an outsider and wanting to break out of that. But the entire musical homage that is everything Rushmore feels so planned out and, again, precise. Wes Anderson... (laughs) is is nothing if not precise and planned out with everything that he does. Yeah. And I definitely, one of my uh, Spotify playlists is just music from Wes Anderson movies. Man, I got to do that. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I bet. I can, I'll share my, my playlist with you. Yeah, please do. Um, well, let's, uh, let's get into the release of this film. Uh, this movie had a a little bit of an unusual release. The Toronto Film Festival was a huge thing, and a lot of movies open there that are like big, huge studio movies. But in the early 90s, most film festivals like Sundance or New York Film Festival or Telluride, you know, occasionally they'd have a few movies with like a name actor or something, but a lot of the movies were like independently financed, but then maybe a studio picked them up for distribution or they got bought at the festival. It was very rare for a movie that had a $10 million budget that was, um, you know, produced by Disney that starred Bill Murray to be like opening at all these film festivals, but it played the festival circuit like New York Film Festival, Telluride, Toronto, and and became a, a big, huge festival hit. And since it was playing all of these festivals, it was getting, you know, critics were noticing it because a lot of times when the movie comes out, if the studios are worried, they don't know how the movie's going to, if it's going to get acclaimed, that the critics don't really 
see it until a general audience does. But I remember when this movie came out, like in the trailer, it was like all these, you know, it was like all the critics had seen it and loved it. So it had all this critical acclaim coming in to give it that push when it when it hit like the general audiences and was like started to play in theaters. That push from hitting festivals and garnering all this critical acclaim really made people aware of it. And especially if you followed like indie film magazines or anything like that, like you you knew you had heard of um, Rushmore and it did pretty decent. It doubled its money at the box office. It wasn't like this huge hit, but it did okay for itself. And then also uh, once it hit theaters, like more critics were like, loving on this movie and Wes Anderson kind of became, you know, critical indie film darling, kind of cemented that with Royal Tenenbaums where it seemed like there was like not a critic that disliked that movie, maybe a few, but that seemed to be the movie where they said, this is Wes, Wes Anderson is like, we're going to watch whatever he puts out after that, after <laughs> that movie. Yeah. Like we loved Rushmore, but Royal Tenenbaums was yeah is is where it's at and he can do no wrong basically after that well uh let's let's stop there we'll come back we'll we'll have some final thoughts on rushmore but we should get into our picks of the week Lindsay, you did him this is i think a first for me where you did a movie that caught me off guard very few times do you have a pick of the week and i have to like imdb it but that that happened to me on this one what can you tell me about hamlet since i know so little about it well, I'm not sure about this, but the idea of adapting Shakespeare into film seems like it could be pretty polarizing. Sort of a love it or hate it type of thing. And I am far from a Shakespeare expert. I've read my fair share of his works and seen a few performances, but I dare say that this film may be one of my favorite Shakespeare film adaptations. For those of you who know nothing about Hamlet, let me do a crude breakdown of one of the world's most famous plays and works of art ever written. So Hamlet's father, the king of Denmark, he dies, returns as a ghost to tell his son to avenge his death, believing that the person responsible for his death was his own brother, Hamlet's uncle Claudius, who has now assumed the role of the king and has taken up with Hamlet's mother. It is a story about doubts, revenge, depression, struggling with trusting oneself and those closest to Hamlet, lots of double-crossing. It's a super engrossing story, which can leave one feeling a bit of Hamlet's own madness by the end. And while this 2000 update follows the story quite well, from what I remember anyway, it doesn't cover everything in the play. But that could be said for any book-to-movie adaptation, play-to-movie. It's just what happens. You just gotta kind of accept it. However, director and screenwriter Michael Almereda kept this adaptation as true to the heart and spirit of Shakespeare's intentions. But what's a total blast is that it's set in contemporary time, right smack in the middle of Manhattan. So we're hearing all of this beautiful dialogue, having not amended from how Shakespeare originally wrote it, but it's set in modern times. And for anyone who struggles to follow Shakespeare unless it's written on paper, just put on the captions for this movie. It's way more enjoyable if you follow the spoken words and it'll save you from having to rewind going, wait, what's going on exactly? Because you can watch this movie and miss the dialogue and just know what's happening by everyone's actions. It's just way more fun, though. I, I put on the captions. I, I don't know. Does that make me sound like I'm 95 years old? I don't know. But it's way more enjoyable to do that. One of the best scenes in the movie is Hamlet walking through a blockbuster while delivering the most well-known to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy. 
It's just such a beautiful blend of postmodern re-envisioning of this old world tale, yet still something incredibly relatable by today's standards. No matter if it's 2021, 2000, when the movie was made, or the 1600s, when this was written, we just understand this story to its extreme emotional core. Another aspect Almereda includes is the use of modern technology, like cameras, answering machines, recording devices, all of these things that are completely foreign to Shakespeare plays, but the inclusion here helps reinforce Hamlet's intense paranoia as he travels through this world of doubting himself and everyone around him and being conflicted about wanting to avenge his father's death in the most violent of fashions. For instance, instead of seeing his father as an apparition, the king appears on a closed-circuit television before Hamlet actually sees him in a tangible way. There are also numerous instances of videos playing in the background of scenes which serve to reinforce what is happening in the actual story. Of course, there are a ton of updated differences. I mean, 400 years have passed since the story was written. My favorite simple difference of this is when Hamlet is trying to make his uncle confess to murdering his father. In the play, he writes a play wherein the situation is acted out with the intent of horrifying his uncle, thus forcing a confession. But in the film version, he creates this short film that is actually pretty cool and very direct and causes the same desired effect. To make this lofty vision of Hamlet like this, or any production really, you need to have a seasoned, sturdy, well-spoken crop of actors who can make that transition from play to film for any Shakespeare story, as well as put butts in those movie theater seats. And Hamlet's cast is a regular who's who. Of course, what brought me to this movie is Mr. Bill Murray, who plays Polonius, the eldest counsel of Claudius, Hamlet's uncle. And I've got to applaud the man for taking on this role. It's a challenge to portray Shakespeare characters on screen, and Bill pulls off playing a caring friend and father, yet a total blabbermouth and gossip queen, who ultimately meets his, well... If you know the story, you know what happened. Let's just say for Murray fans, you hardly ever get to see the man injured ever in a movie. But boy, do we see it here. In the title role is Ethan Hawke, which probably comes as no surprise to anyone who understands the actor to be very well-read, introspective, and a creatively thorough type of guy. I think he's absolutely wonderful as Hamlet, even in his 90s-style beanie. And who out there is a Twin Peaks fan? Because we've got Kyle MacLachlan coming in as the super dark and devious Claudius with that smarmy, sexy charm he can muster up every now and again. Diane Venora as Queen Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. Ugh, it's hard for me to feel bad for her as a character, but it's very obvious Ms. Venora can clearly bring the stage to the screen, amending where necessary. And not to be outdone at all, Julia Stiles plays Ophelia, daughter of Polonius and former, current, maybe, love interest of Hamlet. And her poor, tormented back and forth with Hamlet is necessary to the story, and Stiles handles the part with grace, drenched in darkness. Her brother, Laertes, played by Leo Schreiber, this guy is probably the only one who feels a little more old-worldy, stage-like than everyone, but it's somewhat impossible to feel out of place in this story because the whole film is such an amalgamation. You're also going to run into Steve Zahn playing Rosencrantz of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are two of Hamlet's friends uh, that prove to have their loyalties elsewhere. And Justin, I know you love some Sam Shepard, and he plays the ghost or Hamlet's deceased father. And though he has many moments of on-screen time, his performances are limited, but nevertheless extremely powerful. I know I need to wrap this up, but 
real quickly, please take note of how the color usage affects the overall feel and tone of the film. It really plays into the coldness and isolation Hamlet is feeling with the bluish hues and blackest blacks. Vibrancy sticks out when it does appear, but we're always reminded of that chill throughout the air when revenge is on the mind and Hamlet feels alone in the world. Oh, and also the music. As a longtime fan of the trip-hop band Morchiba, it was absolutely delightful and very appropriate to hear them a few times. In general, the soundtrack is eclectic and deliberate in song placement, so listen for those musical cues as well. I was just so pleased with this version of Hamlet, not only for its visual communication to the audience and performances, but also how the source material was adhered to, yet made all anew. Re-envisioning Shakespeare is a high challenge, which was certainly mastered here and deserves a watch for anyone who's not seen it. I don't know. You've got me sold on this. I'm going to give it a go. I'm not I've not always been a big fan of like Shakespeare into movie adaptations. Some of them I've liked, but uh, I think that's why I must have just this one slipped past me and not even knowing about it. I, I think it is something that a Shakespeare purist might feel is a bastardization because it is a modern re-envisioning. There's just something that really sells me on this yeah. movie. It, it It's completely unique. Well, I can assure you I'm no Shakespeare purist, so I'll probably like it. <laughs> I can't wait for the verdict on this. You can borrow it anytime. All right. All right. It's your turn, Justin. Tell me about your pick. So my pick of the week was Permanent Midnight. I'm starting this pick of the week like I've done many of my picks of the week in the past, where the way I talk about this movie, you're going to think like, did you even like this thing? <laughs> but I, I say this and I, I you know, you'll, you'll know what I mean when I get to it. I really do enjoy this movie. I seem to enjoy movies about strung out junkies. I don't know why. Even the bad ones. I just like junkie drug movies. And so this is, I, I think, a pretty decent one. A lot of why it's good, I think, is because of Ben Stiller. Um, and because it's based on a true story of a Hollywood writer, Jerry Stahl, he wrote a book called Permanent Midnight, and this movie is based off of his book. It's a autobiography of his time in Hollywood. He moved from New York to Hollywood, ended up getting a job writing for the television show ALF. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was a pretty goofy 80s show about a, a like basically a, a cheap puppet named ALF that they that was supposed to be an alien in the show living with this uh, suburban family and like sitcom, really sitcom eighties TV in the movie. Uh, they, they, I guess they couldn't get the rights, So he's not writing for the show. Alf, he's writing for a show called Mr. Chompers. But uh, when he arrives in LA, he's already kind of addicted to prescription drugs as well as his friend is a, as a drug addict played by Owen Wilson. He immediately gets hooked up in a scheme of like, helping this woman get her green card by marrying her, played by Elizabeth Hurley in a, in a really great role. His addiction grows stronger. He eventually gets into heroin. He's making $5,000 a week as a Hollywood television writer, um, but has like a $6,000 a week heroin habit. Um, it's this section of the movie that Ben Stiller's just so freaking great. I mean, there's scenes where it's almost like, uh, I'm, I just get like my, my throat gets dry watching him. Cause it's like, he, he plays like the strung out junkie so well, where he's like sweating and like pounding water and like can barely talk straight and, you know, trying to do all, there's many scenes that I think play funny you know in that dark comedy style where it the scene is so messed up because it's like depressing he's like so strung out but he's like trying to do these pitch meetings and like 
get these different writing jobs. His performance alone is worth watching the movie, in my opinion. I think that's the reason to watch the movie. The big problem I have with the movie that I think brings it down for me is the storytelling because all the stuff with Ben Stiller and like behind the scenes Hollywood insider stuff and him like getting hooked on heroin is all the interesting stuff. But the way they frame the story is in the beginning of the movie, he's clean and he meets up with this woman and they have like this two day stint in this hotel where they're having sex. She's a former junkie. So she's asking him about his story. And so he's, he's like telling her the story of him being a junkie in LA, like in between their different moments of having sex. And like, then we flashback. It's like a corny or lazy way to like, because he's got such an interesting story. I don't know why, you know, to me, it would have been awesome just to play it without doing all this cutting back to the hotel with them. And and they, they kind of tie it together at the end. There's a reason for it. But to me, it wasn't worth having to like, do this whole flashbacky stuff. Outside of that, Ben Stiller's, I think this is the best performance that he's ever given. And uh, there's also a great um, Janine Garofalo doing her thing, you know, that she does so well. She's got a tiny bit part as someone who's trying to become Ben Stiller's agent. Any movie about someone who's a junkie is, is can be depressing, but because we start out seeing him clean and we know that the the end result is like not going to be him like dying in some hotel room it kind of keeps it from going into like a darker direction that some movies about people like going you know completely spiraling out of control it also doesn't subject you to like very painful like rehab scenes which some some drug movies can do so i i would say in my scale of like drug movies i'd, I'd put this solidly in the middle yeah, I could say it solidly in the middle is is pretty accurate. If you if you like Ben Stiller, only know him from slapstick comedies of the two thousands. You gotta watch this one. Yeah. Well, those are our picks of the week: Hamlet and Permanent Midnight. Um, Lindsay, you got the day off for this Murray moment because <laughs> this uh, was such it's a true. heavy Bill Murray episode. So, I mean, do you want to know the the scene where Max releases bees on? Mr. Bloom in the hotel room that actually the the bees that were released, the ones that couldn't sting weren't moving appropriately. So they had to release the the worker bees and Bill wasn't afraid of being stung. He just was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, that's commitment. Before we close this thing out, Lindsay, do you have any final thoughts on Rushmore or just Wes Anderson in general? Gosh, for Rushmore in general, since it had been so long since I had watched this, I was reminded upon this revisiting how much I connected with it as a high schooler and maybe the extremes that Max goes to not so much, even though I can definitely identify some cringy moments in my high school of being a little extra, but the feeling of being an outsider, outcast, not really being understood, really did identify with that and kind of brought back some of those feelings uh, with Max and him being into performing plays, that sort of thing. I really did identify with that aspect of Max and um, just everything. The overall vibe of Rushmore lives very deeply in my heart. Um, As far as Wes Anderson, as I said before, I did watch all of his movies in order, except for all of the ones that deal specifically with animals only. But on the animal tip, I noticed something that I hadn't ever thought of before. And 
I want to know what the dude's connection is with harming animals. He obviously loves them, but if you notice, there's so many times where a dog is needlessly killed or a cat thrown out a window or it's mentioned that an animal dies in a violent way. I really want to know what his connection is. Like, did something happen in his past? Did did he have a dog die that he was super connected to and he's not ever going to be over it? I mean, God love you, man. I, I, I feel that. I just want to know why the animal violence. Yeah, until you mentioned that to me, um, I didn't really think about it, But then I started thinking about his movies. And I was like, oh, man, you're right. There is a, multiple movies where there's a pet death or... It's used in some sort of comical fashion. And it's not really that we we see it happen. Either we're told about it or we're watching people's reactions to an animal dying. Yeah. Just a a weird thing to include in all of your movies. There's got to be something there for him. Those are my thoughts. I have a billion more. I've got a, a billion Murray moment stories, you know, out of Rushmore. But Justin, please tell me, what's your final thought? Yeah, I didn't have anything too crazy. I mean, I think we covered most of the the thoughts I had on Rushmore. Um, With Wes Anderson, I I just, you know, again, think he's one of the few filmmakers that has like such a distinct style that there's really nobody else like him. I am a a huge movie collector and the Criterion Collection puts out great Blu-rays and DVDs and usually like great packaging with lots of supplemental material for us is always just fantastic because you know we can get heavy into our research for these movies but um yeah Wes Anderson seems to be like one of the few directors where they they have almost like every single one of his movies have put out like this like fantastic you know blu-ray dvd with like tons of uh extras on them I own most of them and man they look great he has to feel pretty good about himself that all his movies are like preserved and like have had these like very like boutique releases. He's one of those filmmakers. I mean, same with Scorsese, same with Quentin Tarantino. If they have a movie coming out, I'll go see it in the theater. You know, I mean, I'll I'll blindly watch it. So we got to plan a date to go see The French Dispatch. We'll do it. Okay. All right. Well, I, I guess the best way to close out Rushmore is to say uh, once again, happy birthday to Bill Murray. Yes. Happy birthday, Bill. And we hope you've enjoyed our episode on Rushmore. We're about to move into our favorite time of the year, uh, October, Halloween season. If you're new to the podcast or if you're a new listener, you may not know this about us. If you've been listening all along, you definitely know that we are big horror movie fans. You know, it was really hard not to make this just a horror movie podcast. But we, <laughs> we love so many movies in general, but... We do take uh, the month of October to really get into our love of horror movies. Uh, We usually also do one extra episode for October. So we have three Halloween-themed episodes, horror movie episodes, coming up next month. So uh, watch our social media. We should have a schedule up for that soon uh, to let you know what movies we'll be doing. And this is a series we're doing uh, 40th anniversary horror movies. Um, All three of the movies we're doing are are celebrating their 40th anniversary, the first one being uh, American Werewolf in London. So look forward to that. Check out our social media at uh, Don't Push Pause Podcast. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. 
We're on YouTube. We also have our own website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com where you can check out all of our old episodes, our archive there, as well as we have a store. We have all kinds of uh, movie memorabilia type stuff for sale, posters, as well as a lot of merch that has our logo on it. If you're a fan of the podcast, please pick up something from there. Uh, all the money that you spend in our store helps us build a bigger and better podcast for years. So we appreciate it so much. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. For all I laughed at all his words. I thought he was a bitter man. He spoke of women's ways. The trap you